welcome to Indefinable Magic, time and space influenced audio monologues about the sort of thing that's only interesting to people whose parents spent a lot of time being slightly worried about them. Written and performed by me, Toby Haydock. Tonight's episode, To Be Continued. Kill them. Kill them now. And of course, by now, they mean next week. I remember writing a What I Did at the Weekend essay, essay, was probably four lines, at school one Monday morning in October 1980. Well, I don't remember that it was October 1980, but I know that it was, because the subject of my lengthy reminiscence, four lines, was the previous Saturday's instalment of Doctor Who, Megloss, Part 3. I was both frustrated and excited, I lamented to Mrs Jones, my kindly but still quite scary teacher. In fact, Teachers are a bit like Doctor Who, aren't they? They provide stability, education, and they anchor us in our childhood, and yet there's something rather terrifying and unknowable about them too. They've seen things we can only dream of, or that's the impression they give, if they're doing it right. Anyway, Jones the teacher asked why I was so frustrated. Well, I said, Doctor Who is under a large rock and they're burning the ropes that are holding it up and it looks like he's going to be squashed, but just as the last rope was burning through, the music came in and the episode ended. I was frustrated because the episode had reached the peak of excitement and then abandoned me. Megloss Interruptus. Ah, well, said wise old Mrs Jones. She probably wasn't that old. She was, in fact, probably younger than I am now, but I remember her as a slightly imperious but not unkind Welsh owl, if that helps you to picture her. Ah well, she said, they leave it on an exciting moment to make you tune in again next week. Kapow. There we had it. That was my epiphany. Yes, Doctor Who was an adventure. And yes, I knew it wasn't real and that TV programmes were made by people. But while that fact lurked in the back of my mind, I never really fixated upon it. There are truths that we know that we somehow manage to block out whilst, at the same time, subconsciously knowing that they are there. For example, I was genuinely surprised when the Daleks appeared at the end of Army of Ghosts, even though a black Dalek, hitherto unseen, had been on an awards show which suggested that this new thing must be lurking around the televisual corner. And even though one part of my brain knew, therefore, that the Daleks were likely to be some part of the season finale, as I enveloped myself within its narrative, I managed to force my brain to do a bit of cognitive dissonance to the extent that the episode ending was a genuine shock, even though in one small corner of my cerebral cortex it was forever not. But even back at school, decades earlier, I knew Doctor Who wasn't real, but I just didn't really like to think about it. I let the fact sleep in my mind, like now my knowledge that Jules Holland's annual Hootenanny isn't actually live on New Year's Eve and those celebrities are 
probably at home with their friends and family, and that Dame Edna Everidge is actually a man called Barry. So yes, Mrs Jones awoke, a slumbering beast of knowledge, that there were people and that they made this, and whatever happened within the adventure was a decision made by human beings who weren't just writing stories. They had other preoccupations, luring the audience in, for example. And acquiring that knowledge, well, it leads you on a path. Well, I think, if their storytelling has an ulterior motive, what other things are these people up to? And then, of course, you dig a little and discover all sorts of areas of interest. Oh, they're writing to a budget. They have to do it in a certain amount of time. They abandon ideas. They fall out with each other. Oh, my goodness. These people who make Doctor Who, they get up to all sorts. Who are they? What do they all do? Their lives must be amazing. So, yes, the cliffhangers are there for an off-screen reason, audience manipulation, as well as an on-screen one, giving the story a dramatic shift or an action high point or a, a moment of shock. Even the earliest, uh, before Doctor Who, yes, there was such a time, cliffhangers had an ulterior motive. Sherazad, or Sher the Crusade, Azad, as she would be known in any Doctor Who non-fiction book, the storyteller of A Thousand and One Nights, ended each of her stories on a cliffhanger, the legend goes, in order to maintain the interest of her husband and thus spare herself from execution. For he... King Shariar would marry a new bride every day and behead her the next morning, which sounds like a pretty ruthless way to behave until you've worked in the television industry. But yes, Scheherazade's life was literally one big psychic circus. Entertain me or die was basically her husband's marriage vow. So she knew the value of leaving her audience, albeit of one, literally wanting more. One has to feel a bit sorry for her. Writing under the threat of death sounds almost as bad as trying to develop a project with a BBC executive. At least Scheherazade's husband didn't ask her to include various story elements and then, when she'd laboured really hard to put them into her next draft, blithely criticise it for containing those very story elements because since then he'd changed his mind on a whim and also he'd forgotten that those ideas were actually his imposition in the first place. He wasn't that much of a twat. By literally ending her nightly instalment of a story halfway through, Scheherazade ensured her own survival, her husband keeping her alive in order to find out what happened next. This bought her time, during which he fell in love with her and so, as all good husbands do, decided that cutting off her head was perhaps not going to be the secret of a happy marriage. And so there was no more need of cliffhangers as their story came to an end and they lived happily ever after. Renowned Charles Dickens, or Charles the Unquiet Dead Dickens, of whom we know the Doctor is a big fan, was also a purveyor of the pre-Who cliffhanger. His novels, big volumes as we digest them today, were, of course, originally published in serial form. And this created great anticipation in his readers, which prolonged and enhanced their experience of his work. So therefore, people who were there at the time could legitimately say 
that those of us who read Dickens now don't get the real experience because they were designed to be read in chunks over a period of time. Instead, what we have today is the UK Gold Sunday omnibus equivalent and it's just not the same. We're not really proper fans, they could tell us. Were they not all dead? So, anyway, by 1860, Dickens' Great Expectation segments were ending with the lure oft seen at the end of post-2005 Doctor Who and many other places in popular culture. Those three words, to be continued, which have now entered the vernacular and are inextricably linked with the idea of tantalising the audience with what's to come. Great expectations indeed. I remember when I couldn't watch Doctor Who live because I'd been sent away to school. I won't go into the reasons here, but it wasn't because we had money, just in case you're about to judge me. Suffice to say, I was away, sleeping there. So I had to badger my friend, who was a day pupil, to tell me what had happened in last night's episode. And I always asked first about the cliffhanger. That was the bit I really needed to know, the most exciting bit. I remember without knowing that The Awakening was actually a two-parter, being puzzled but thrilled by the idea that episode two of that ended with everyone going for tea. Wow! I exclaimed. The first ever not-exciting cliffhanger. I was thrilled, proving that when you love something, it can do anything to you and you'll still adore it. Obviously, I am older and less easily pleased these days, but... I don't think that's a victory, and it is final proof of the underlying tragedy of this thing that we call life. Indeed, my first idea of what happened in many stories of yore was what happened at the end of the episode, as that was the information available in the episode guide section in Doctor Who magazine. This provided the cast list and the episode endings, the two key ingredients to any story. And my golly, did they give a flavour of the dramatic peaks of each adventure. The TARDIS explodes at the end of part one of the Mind Robber. Captain Hopper and Jim Callum reach for their weapons, but a bolt from Klieg's gun stuns them into insensibility at the end of Tomb of the Cybermen, part three. With Knight dead, Travers kidnapped, and Lethbridge Stewart's breakout bid foiled, Episode 4 of The Web of Fear sounded desperate as Travers burst in, his eyes glazed with the power of the intelligence. Those are just three examples that I simply couldn't wait to see. Well, in the case of the latter, I had to wait another 30 years. Whilst with the Tomb of the Cybermen one, I had to wait forever, because that's not really how it happened. At least the Mind Robber one wasn't a work of fiction and was as amazing, if not more so, than I imagined when I finally did get to see it. The cliffhangers were, more often than not, the most exciting part of the episode. That's what they were, after all, designed to be. Be they a moment of high drama, a shocking twist, or the revelation of a monster. Although, in Doctor Who terms, this latter one often meant that if a story was called Something of the Daleks, then episode one was contractually obliged to end with the shock revelation 
of a Dalek, a practice so annoying it was ultimately banned by the Geneva Convention. And not before Terry Nation, the writer of those Dalek stories, had taken even more of the piss by revealing that the androids in the story The Android Invasion, at the end not of part one, oh no, but of part two, halfway through the story. That said, the ending of part two of The Android Invasion, even if it is revealing something that we already know, is brilliant. I actually don't care one jot that it's rendered redundant by the very name of the show that it is in, or that the android Sarah's face falls off so easily. It doesn't matter. It is a brilliantly filmed and acted scene, and the effect of our lovely companion's face falling off to reveal the circuitry underneath is such an arresting image. It's more than a sum of its parts, and a moment, I'm sure, seared into the memory of those who watched it when it was first broadcast. In fact, I would venture to say that the majority of our most memorable moments, those of us brought up on Classic Who, were the cliffhangers. Mine? who oh, I remember running to the kitchen in excitement after seeing Davros's fingers move at the end of Destiny of the Daleks, part two. I mean, I had pictures of him. He was on book covers. But now I was going to see him move and speak. Well, not now. Next week. And that was the point. I know exactly where I was. Ray and Mary Priest's house. My family had gone out for the night, so an elderly couple looked after me and let me watch my favourite show in their kitchen. When Scaroth tore his face off at the end of City of Death, episode one. They always end on an exciting bit, don't they? said Mary. Back in my own house, the close-up of Orkon's eyes at the end of State of Decay, part three, was probably the nearest I got to scurrying behind the sofa. And it was the good sofa in the sitting room where we were rarely allowed, so something must have been going on elsewhere in the house. Hopefully not something involving Shakespearean vampires with heavy eye makeup. But of course, when we think of cliffhangers in general, I think a certain generation or two have an image of the perils of Pauline or some other black and white early 20th century action-adventure silent series all flickering monochrome and speeded-up footage, daredevil capers which would often end with a seemingly impossible get-out. Oh no! The car has fallen off a cliff and our heroes are trapped inside it! In those early days, however, it was perfectly acceptable for it to be revealed the following week that between the moment someone was locked in the car and handcuffed to the steering wheel, they'd found the key, undone the handcuffs, unlocked the door, watched the special edition of Return of the King, jumped out and landed safety, and then, and only then, did the footage you saw at last week's climax of the car going over the cliff actually happen. They cheated, basically. Big time. By the time that cliffhangers became the staple of Doctor Who and other serialised TV drama, such cheating simply wasn't done. The audience wouldn't have it. That said, Doctor Who isn't entirely immune to the cheating cliffhangers. In The Seeds of Death, for example, episode 5, it seems that the Doctor is trapped outside and is about to succumb to an exploding seed pod because Zoe and Jamie are trapped within, hiding from an ice warrior. Come the reprise in episode 6, it turns out that they were hiding from the ice warrior, but that was ages ago, and that Jamie has had time to lure the creature away, to give Zoe time to open the door and let the Doctor and a year's supply of fairy liquid in with him. 
Planet of the Spiders adds quite a lot of footage in Episode 6 that wasn't there in the lead-up to the cliffhanger of Episode 5, but that is not because it's a false one, like that described above from Seeds of Death, but one born out of necessity. Shockingly, if you are watching Episode 6 of Spiders, it is not until nearly six minutes into the action that you get to the cliffhanger from last week, even though you will have seen some new footage before then. Never mind the story hanging from a cliff edge, the production team seems to be clinging on for dear life as the season comes to an end. But Planet of the Spiders 5 contrives to end on a number of different anomalous cliffhanger subcategories, should you have space for such things in your mental filing cabinet. I know I do. One of those subcategories, guest actor in peril, as opposed to regular cast, we will deal with later. But the episode was not supposed to conclude, as it does, with Tommy being zapped by Lupton's gang of gammons. This hastily cobbled together climax was the result of not one, but three cliffhangers having to be altered from what was originally intended, after the story was underrunning, thanks to Barrylets being unable to complete the shooting of all of the Metabilis 3 sequences, and rejecting some on technical grounds. Letts had decided that the CSO on Metabilis was less convincing than the acting, which is bad news for the CSO, I can tell you that. It was a tense time in the director's box for those Metabilis scenes. Sounds like the air turned blue. Anyway, episodes 3, 4 and 5 are without the endings they were designed to have, and the domino effect of this juggling results in the strange, huge crossover of material in Pertwee's final half-hour. Although those three are probably the most desperate attempts to rescue a story's chapter breaks, there are perhaps more famous missteps. One of Doctor Who's most well-known cliffhangers, probably not for the reasons its creators would want it to be, is of course the literal cliffhanger of Episode 1 of Dragonfire. Oh, how the viewers who tuned into the Doctor's much-vaunted 150th adventure must have chortled at the cheeky meta-gag of the cliffhanger involving the Doctor hanging as he does from a cliff. Brilliant! Well, I mean, they would have been chortling had they not been instead turning to each other and snorting. Why has he just literally walked off the edge of a precipice to dangle himself into a perilous situation like a bloody idiot? Uh, the reason it transpires next week is because there is a ledge below him. But this is less a perils of Pauline cheat, though, and more of a, how can I describe this? Oh, yes, crime against television. Still, cliffhanger. Nice gag. Cliffs are also included in another botched episode ending, that of the Stones of Blood Part 1, in which the idea is that a phantom version of the Doctor tricks Romana into a death by plunge. But Tom Baker's refusal to appear as a deadly doppelganger of a children's hero and the compromised shooting that therefore ensued makes for a rather confusing denouement. But still, we do see poor old Romana falling out of shot and over the edge, even if, instead of the audience saying... Ah, a literal cliffhanger. How clever. They're saying, um, what exactly happened there? In fact, while we're on the subject, 
the contrived cliffhanger for the Five Doctors episode one, when the story was split into quarters for a welcome BBC repeat, only went and used Sarah Jane's tumble down a hillock, which in the script was conceived as a plunge over a precipice, as the climax. In reality, it's less of a cliffhanger and more of a mound tumbler. The moral here seems to be a meta cliffhanger referencing the literal motif of the dangerous cliff edge itself is a wonderful, witty idea that is nonetheless a terrible one if you get all of the other elements of what makes a good cliffhanger wrong. Or, careful about being too clever, because you might end up toppling off the edge. I mean, look, I speak with love. There's only a small number of Doctor Who cliffhangers that don't quite work. And let's be fair, I even invoked a moment just now, the Five Doctors episode one so-called, that wasn't even meant to be a cliffhanger to illustrate my point, so the science of my argument is so shaky it could end up on Spotify. But while I am here, and I will be doling out the praise shortly and at length, don't worry, it's worth giving a little time to some of those exceptions to the rule that Doctor Who's cliffhangers generally sear themselves into our imaginations. That they, to borrow a phrase from a loony, stayed in our mind's eye for the whole week and made us come back for more. Like, say, that of Death to the Daleks, Episode 3, in which the Doctor notices a mosaic tile on the floor, which we learn next week is deadly, but until then, it may as well be John Pertwee revealing to Belal that he isn't wild about vermilion geometrics. Tune in next week to see how Doctor Who reacts to Turquoise Check. Uh, talking of Death to the Daleks, there's often a criticism levelled at episode one's ending that it is clear that the Daleks' guns don't work, but I don't buy that. In the slower cutting pace of 70s TV, the idea that characters would have time to grimace and hide their heads before the special effects laser kicked in was one that an audience would be used to, so I think we're maybe retconning that, watched in isolation, without knowing what comes next. I don't think it makes it obvious that the Dalek guns aren't working. People in 70s Who often have to stand around waiting in order to get shot slash hit slash felled. And to be fair, we should just be grateful, being that it's the end of part one of a Dalek story, that they simply don't crash in the theme as soon as the deadly pepper pots come round the corner. And at least also it is the Doctor who is in the firing line at the end of Death to the Daleks part one. As we have already established, his very last cliffhanger doesn't even feature him. It's one of the few members, Planet of the Spiders Part 5, of an exclusive little gang of episode endings in which none of the regulars are imperiled, but instead some random guest star. I'm rather fond of these, and rather thrilled for its small bevy of exclusive cardholders. Joining Tommy from Spiders, we have Thomas in The Face of Evil Part 2, and Professor Watson at the end of The Hand of Fear Part 2. When I read about the aforementioned Tomb of the Cybermen Part 3, with Callum and Hopper stunned into insensibility in Doctor Who magazine, it too sounded like one of those moments. But, as shown, it actually looks like it is the Doctor who is about to be shot by Klieg. Sure, we hear Callum saying, look out, Doctor, out of vision, but we don't realise that he gets hit or anything until next week's resolution. And Captain Hopper, on the other hand, is nowhere to be seen, and so he remains unstunned, Doctor Who magazine episode guide, 
and resolutely not insensible. In fact, he's Captain Sensible. So Tomb 3 is definitely a Doctor in Peril moment. The bizarrest of the someone other than the Doctor or companions being in danger subset, though, is of course Episode 3 of The Demons, which shows the Master cowering under the might of the demonic Azal. How will the show's main villain get out of this one is a novel gambit to be sure, and a tribute to the impact Roger Delgado has made on the show, but nonetheless, it's very odd. I suppose the oh-heck-the-villain-is-in-trouble subgenre might find an entry in the climaxes of The Enemy of the World, which seem to be on a mission to kibosh any reminder of anything remotely like a traditional Doctor Who cliffhanger. The story gives the impression that every episode ends with someone walking into a room and surprising everybody else in it, leading to a series of shocked close-ups. At the end of episode one, Doctor Who walks into a room and surprises a man we've only just met called Donald Bruce because he's dressed as Salamander. And then in episode four, a man we met four episodes ago, Donald Bruce, walks into a room and surprises the Doctor because he's dressed as Salamander. The Villain in Peril episode, episode three, has Salamander twigging that he has a Chaplin-esque doppelganger. But to be fair, that's not just about Salamander realising that he has a nemesis. It is also him discovering the looky-likey aspect of the plot, which, by implication, is bad news for our heroes too. Episode 5, on the other hand, has guest character, who we recently met, Astrid, stumbling into a guy we only just met called Swan, who tells her that he has been attacked by Salamander. Shocking news for Astrid, but not so much for the audience, as we saw it happen about five minutes ago. So it's sort of only a cliffhanger for her. Thankfully, she has the presence of mind to look shocked. Otherwise, no one in the control gallery would quite know when to bring in the closing music. Episode 2, on the other hand, is a nice piece of character development, but it definitely falls into the supporting character in peril subgenre. A man we have only just met, Cowardly Federer, is revealed as the future chief witness of the prosecution of another man we have only just met, Alexander Dinesh. Cue lots of quick cutting of people we have only just met, looking shocked. I actually admire the enemy of the world's tenacity in trying something different, but if I'm being deeply honest with myself, I have to admit they only work because they vary from the norm. And if the norm was always like what is offered to us here by David Whittaker and Barry Letts and a room full of shocked people whom we have only just met, then I'm not sure many a kid would have been scribbling much in their exercise books come most Monday mornings at school. Salamander has made a political power grab by outmanoeuvring the head of the Central European Zone in order to put a puppet in his place would probably have just baffled Mrs Jones. Sometimes, though, a random character imperiled has wider implications for the story. We aren't bothered about Ibrahim Namin's death at the end of Pyramids of Mars 1. He's a bad guy who plays with his organ a little too vigorously when he's left alone. But what happens here is an escalation of threat. We thought the mad gun-toting Egyptian was the main bad guy and in it for the long haul, as he'd proved quite an effective combatant. But then the real baddie turns up and kills him horribly. And that's bad news for everyone else, notably 
the Doctor and Sarah, who watch as the befezzed zealot gets a harrowingly realised death by burning fingers. It's one for the truly great cliffhangers Hall of Fame, just because every element is done so well. Sutek's servant is made of such hot stuff, his shoes burn holes in the carpet with a shuddering fizz. Namin's scream is grotesque, and he wobbles about with a shuddering fez, and smoke rises from his shoulders as the Doctor can only look on, whilst the flat tones of his new nemesis calmly promise death to all humanity. Oh, golly, I'm excited just thinking about it. This is the stuff. Spearhead from Space also threatens guest characters. Ransom at the end of episode two. The Auton comes alive and begins to stalk its quarry, said the DWM episode guide, a sentence that as a six-year-old I simply could not comprehend. And General Scobie in episode three. The first episode, at least, has the Doctor in danger. Unable to cry out because his mouth is taped, he cannot identify himself and so is shot in the head by a nervous unit soldier. The soldier's corporal is not impressed. Who told you to fire, you stupid... Crash in titles, the only time they've ever done so in order not to lure the audience back next week, but in fact to stop them from hearing a rude word. Tune in to next week's exciting episode to finally hear Corporal Forbes say twat. The most intelligent guest character in Peril episode ending is probably part two of the massacre, The Sea Beggar. It's an important title. Everyone bangs on about The Sea Beggar in this episode, which is not good news for The Sea Beggar because most of the banging is about a gun that will shortly be banging in his direction. For The Sea Beggar, as Marshal Tavan says, dies tonight. We also meet a lovely old fellow called the Admiral de Coligny, who seems to be a beacon of hope for the massacre not ending in, well, a massacre. Fortunately, there were no on-screen overall story names in those days, as the story's title, even if you insist on adding St Bartholomew's Eve to it, is a massive spoiler for the story's closing moments. It'd be a bit like calling the demons the exploding church, or Doctor Who and the Silurians, don't worry, the brigadier will kill them. At the end of The Sea Beggar, after it has been emphasised just how doomed the sea beggar is, de Coligny gets to deliver a line dripping with dramatic irony. Up until this point, the audience have known two very separate but important things. De Coligny is nice and the key to avoiding disaster, and the sea beggar is going to die. Only in that final line do we realise that they are one in the same. The sea beggar, he says, talking of the nickname the Dutch have given him. It's a title I'd be proud of. Well, it's certainly an episode ending to be proud of. Unlike many cliffhangers where the characters are aware of the danger they are in, this one oozes tension, melancholy and an inevitable sense of doom. All sorts. Because in telling us of his new moniker, de Coligny is justifiably proud. But in that moment we learn that the source of his pride actually signs his own death warrant. It's a fantastic piece of writing and a cliffhanger that reaches the parts many other cliffhangers don't. I'd argue it's the best cliffhanger of the three in that story and seeing as the other two are one, cripes, the Doctor is a baddie and three, 
Blimey cripes, the Doctor is a baddie and also now dead. Well, that's quite some achievement. Season 3, actually, is a funny old thing, but even so, it is ambitious and sometimes strange. And that does mean we get the occasional gem of a cliffhanger. Not just those mentioned above, but what about episode 2 of The Ark? The story seems over, and that's okay. There have been two-parters before, but hang on. We're back where we were. Uh, except the statue, which was going to be that of a human and take 700 years to build, has been completed. And it's only a bloomin' monoid now. That's a real, what would be called by especially punchable people today, WTF moment of the highest order, and one of the most brilliant cliffhangers the show has ever done. It's a striking switcheroo told with visuals and economy, and as a result, packs a bit of extra heft than a, say, the monoids enter the room and exclaim, It's 700 years later and we are in charge now. Kill them. Kill them all. Moment. Frankly, it's the sort of cliffhanger they sell at Marks and Spencer's. Oh yes, if there was an M&S end of episode range, there would be some undoubted bestsellers. The very first cliffhanger, Shadow falls on TARDIS, now sitting in Paleolithic landscape, and the besuckered climax to the dead planet are amazing. Maybe their iconic status helps. It's hard to be objective about them now, but the build-up to Barbara's suckering is shot with a real sense of creeping menace, so maybe it is just brilliant, never mind its iconic status. The Marshman, rising from the swamp at the end of Full Circle 1, is fairly standard fare on paper. We've seen monsters rising from the water before, and will do again. But it's shot so brilliantly by film cameraman Max Sammet, and cut together in such a way that it is pretty unforgettable. The mist, the silhouetted monsters, the slow-mo, I'd marry it if I could. Director Peter Grimwade didn't need any such tricks when he made Earthshock Part 1, a defining moment for a certain generation. I'd read about the Cybermen, but I'd never seen them. If you weren't there and my age when it was broadcast, then Earthshock 1 might not have been the same for you, but for me, watching it live and with no idea what was coming, well, it's probably as exciting as my life has ever been. I mean, there are just so many that we could be here all day, but perhaps the one that is closest to a work of art is that of Vengeance on Varos, part one, in which the Doctor's apparent demise is filmed for the watching viewers on the planet Gogglebox. We see his apparent death throes through the lens of the control room filming them, and through the eyes of the viewers at home. Director Ron Jones cleverly cuts to the closing titles, not in the traditional place when the Doctor apparently dies, but when we are back in the control room after the event, showing the bank of monitors, reminiscent of the director's box, in which the makers of this episode are themselves ensconced and choreographing this moment of Doctor Who. And the governor gives the instruction, and cut it now. And then, presumably, so does director Ron Jones, in his control room, in front of his bank of monitors. Glorious. And so it speaks to us about how we are being titillated by carefully orchestrated violence, which we are being manipulated to enjoy. Clever stuff, layered on top of a very traditional, oh heck, the Doctor's dead moment. It's probably the best cliffhanger in the world.
Now, we could be here forever going over the many different styles of cliffhanger there are. Shootings, explosions, threats, story twists. We play the contest again, Time Lord. You what? The very best cliffhangers are those you don't see coming. Some stories, however, give the impression that they have the same cliffhanger every week. I'm not sure an episode of The Dominators doesn't end with the naughty underling Dominator Toba disobeying orders and demanding that his quarks destroy the Doctor and or Jamie and or Zoe. But the three billionth time this happens, we can be certain that stroppy bossman Dominator Rago will stride in next week and countermand the order, leading petulant factotum Dominator Toba to strop off with a flea in his ear about wasting energy. A couple of seasons later, and if there is an episode of The Mind of Evil that doesn't end with the Keller machine throbbing so scarily that Dudley Simpson's Keller machine music kicks in, then I'm a monkey's uncle. Oh, maybe I am then, because there are, of course. I've just remembered. And uh, one of them is one of the cherishable no-regular-characters-in-danger affairs. That I didn't initially remember it is likely down to the fact that it's a character we have literally only just met, the American ambassador, who is threatened by a quilted pink dragon. So actually, it makes you yearn for the welcome throbs of the dematerialising mind parasite and its phallic box of doom. But then, episode five of The Mind of Evil gives us an absolute gem in another most welcome subcategory. The firing gun. Oh yes, there've been a million gun-toting finales. A veritable feast of kill them, kill them nows. But if the gun doesn't fire this time around, you sure as hell know it won't be firing next week. The mind of evil, though, has steely hard man Mailer lose his rag with the Doctor and decide to finish him off. Close up of gun. Bang. Oh my God. The Doctor's dead. The gun fired at close range. Except next week, of course, it is revealed that the gun doing the firing actually belongs to the Brigadier who has entered in the Nick Courtney of time. It was him firing, killing Mailer. It's legit, though. It's not a perils of Pauline bit of cheating, but a canny piece of misdirection without fiddling with the timeline or inserting any convenient new footage. Those superior firearms threatening climaxes which actually see, or at least hear, the weapons pop their load include the end of part one of the war games. This is another brilliant cheat. The Doctor is lined up waiting for execution. The soldiers take aim. We close in on the Doctor. A shot rings out and he flinches. But next week it turns out that the shot was that of an enemy sniper taking out one of the Doctor's execution party. And the flinch? Well, you'd flinch, wouldn't you, if you're expecting to be shot and you heard a noise ring out? And the clue was there. It's not a cheat. Captain Ransom, ordering the firing squad, has not shouted fire at the end of the previous episode. The shot rings out after he says ready and aim, but before that final command. So, a child, whose mind was racing at such a shocking conclusion, might have been led to work out what might have happened, and then felt extremely pleased with themselves and clever when proved right the following week. So that's a cliffhanger that works on every level. Murdine at the end of The Trial of a Time Lord, part three, looks like he shot Doctor Who with his crossbow. But again, without cheating, it turns out that the target is actually Grumpy Grell, situated behind our lead character, 
not that we know this, until next week, and the real target for Murdine's arrow. Now, I remember working out that this was likely to be the outcome in the week between those two episodes and feeling very pleased with my 12-year-old self as a result. Very nice. Well, not very nice for Grell, but he really needed to chill out. Those gunshots work particularly well because the brandishing of a gun and pointing it at our heroes is pretty standard fare at the 25 minutes mark. Season 7 is full of them. Inferno has alternate world Benton pointing a gun at the Doctor and threatening to shoot him here and now. Dangerous enough, but also there to emphasise that these characters may look like our friends, but they are decidedly dodgy versions of them. They're not a patch on the nice ones. One episode later, we find the Doctor at the wrong end of a revolver, brandished by director Stallman, and it's wonderfully shot, the scene, not the gun, and edited. But actually, the gun is a secondary threat. It's the countdown we should really be worried about. And, in fact, we get a unique occurrence of the sound carrying on after the visuals have faded into the closing titles. So the penetration of the Earth's crust is announced over John Pertwee's name. Oh, if Carlsberg made cliffhangers. The Ambassadors of Death has two such examples of gun-toting, one at the end of the first episode and one at the end of the penultimate one, although this is augmented by the great John Abeneri talking about his moral duty, so it is a bit above just being a man waving his weapon about. Ambassadors, though, has a rare thing for Classic Who that became a mainstay of the show once Russell T Davis had revived it, and that is the, what I shall call, episode zero cliffhanger. RTD, robbed of the opportunity to do too many episode endings because the majority of new series stories are to be self-contained, at least tries to capture their spirit by having a moment of jeopardy, or a moment of WTF, or, if we really have to do this, OMG, before the opening titles kick in. It certainly gets the adventures off to a flying start, and has the viewer salivating from the offset. So it takes a favourite part of Classic Who and it transposes it to the other end of the episode to capture the same kind of feeling of anticipation. And that's essentially what director Michael Ferguson does all those years earlier with the Ambassadors of Death. Having constructed a motif whereby an episode's cliffhanger is played in after the opening titles, but not the story title, the words The Ambassadors Clang of Death crash in where the cliffhanger came last week. So you have titles, reprise, Ambassador's Clang of Death. It's fabulous and it's gorgeous, and although the way the titles are normally played is perfectly fine, this one-off attempt at something new means someone like me, who's frankly used to having the same thing week in, week out, may occasionally yearn for a dirty weekend with the Ambassador's of Death, with its unusual screaming that gives me, frankly, one I actually don't get very much at home anymore. But this means episode one needs something at the beginning. It doesn't inherit a cliffhanger from last week, so it needs a pre-story cliffhanger. As I say, the episode zero cliffhanger. They took off from Mars seven months ago. They must have been alive then, says Ralph Cornish, calmly. Cornish fails to placate nervous astronaut Van Leiden, though. Something took off from Mars, says Van Leiden. Boom! 
two titles and musical sting, and is it any wonder I think Ambassadors of Death is satisfying in me a way that other titles just haven't for years? So that's a cliffhanger before the story even begins, which we also get with the only proper, proper pre-titles action we get in Classic Who. Castrovalva and the Five Doctors don't really count. At the beginning of Remembrance of the Daleks, a beautiful, evocative medley of famous voices, embedding us in a particular time, in space, but also giving us a sense of history, of occasion. And then a huge spaceship hones into view. Crash titles. Gorgeous. One wonders why we didn't start stories with cliffhangers more often back in the day. It is, for my money, more effective than the much-loved ending to that episode, which, yes, sends a thousand unimaginative comedians and commentators back to their drawing board. Now they can no longer say that the Daleks can't climb the stairs. Actually, they still carry on saying it. It's just that now they're factually inaccurate when they do so. But for most fans, the end of episode one of Remembrance of the Daleks is a punch-the-air moment. The Dalek is climbing the stairs. But this has always been slightly marred for me by the fact that it just keeps saying exterminate without doing any exterminating. You thought the end of Death to the Daleks episode one was drawn out? This is the Scorosian equivalent of giving someone till a count of ten and then saying nine, nine and a half, I really am going to exterminate you, you know. Nine and three quarters, this really is your last chance. Nine and four fifths, I'm warning you. But yeah, all right, the stairs thing is still pretty cool. For episode two, the stakes are even higher, as this time it's three Daleks who surround Ace and keep repeating exterminate whilst not doing any exterminating. At least they're consistent. Now, I watched Remembrance go out when it was new, so perhaps that's why I'm cynical, because I was an ancient 15-year-old or whatever. But even when I knew what happened in the stories in question, the best cliffhangers still had the power to surprise me. This isn't going to become a list of favourites, as there are so many that work for different reasons, but how about The Face of Evil Part 3? Now, on paper, I'd read about it in DWM's archives and episode guide, it's not much. The Doctor has to squirm as the mad computer Zoanon basically yells his way into the cliffhanger, asking, Who am I? Who am I? But Pennant Roberts, on no one's top ten list of TV Who directors, has a moment of serious inspiration, getting young Anthony Freeze, a visiting schoolboy who has won a set visit, to record the climactic line as well, and it chimes in at the end like a poignant refrain, an empty echo of innocence in the bawling computer's schizophrenic mind-mash. Stunning. And go on then, one can't not mention the Caves of Androzani. Its traditional firing squad cliffhanger on part one is made into something special due to director Graham Harper's decision to arm his soldiers with machine guns the rat-a-tat-tat of hot metal in profile, giving the viewer a, well, they can't have got out of that feeling, even though the Doctor and Perry's escape has been brilliantly, subtly foreshadowed a few minutes earlier. It's all perfectly judged, though. A sequence of not unusual events for Doctor Who, made very special thanks to thoughtful staging. As for part three, Peter Davison's last ever cliffhanger, it's superbly wrought. 
helped by an excellent performance from the leading man. But again, it's fairly straightforward on paper, given urgency thanks to Harper's superb orchestration. The oxyacetylene kit burning through the door. Stotts singeing his arm. The doctor framed through the hole that's been cut. The juddering ship. The crescendo of sound. It's a superb climax. So good. So beautifully judged that it totally distracts us from the fact that the Doctor gets out of this perilous situation in the next instalment by, um, well, landing the ship. A bit bumpily. But what a great final episode ending for Doctor Number 5, with him stating out loud that, I owe it to my friend, and showing that despite his youth and zestfulness, there's grit and determination to this superb and often underestimated Doctor. And just to prove that the Caves of Androzani really is a great example of Doctor Who, it accompanies these two absolute peaches of cliffhangers with an absolute howler of one. There are very few scenes, indeed there are very few shots, moments, in the Caves of Androzani that don't work. But one of them is most definitely when a becloaked bat dragon ambles alongside the Doctor and raises its arm aloft to show its hollow fingers flapping in the merest breeze. It's a surprise Davison doesn't regenerate out of pure shame. But in the great scheme of things, I suppose that it is at least satisfying to know that nothing, including one of Doctor Who's most superbly mounted productions, is perfect. I suppose one could say, watching it years later, that it reflects the story's spectroc subplot by not ageing well. But I'm not sure it was even very good at the time. Probably the most shocking came from that underrated gem whose name I am more than happy to drop again, the Ambassador's Clang of Death. I was enjoying watching episode two, but I had no idea how it would end. If the episode guide in DWM had told me, then by the time I got to watch the story, I hadn't remembered. So it obviously hadn't sounded that exciting. So watching this episode, absorbed by the story I was unfamiliar with and being pleasantly surprised by, I was knocked sideways by the orchestration of its climax. The Mars probe has mysteriously turned up again, and the Doctor is trying to get through to the astronauted side. Finally, Van Leiden's voice comes through, but it's repetitive, not responding to the Doctor's direct questions. How many beans make five? Michael Ferguson's juddering, quick-cut close-ups. Dudley Simpson's tense, sparse, throbbing music. It's not much on paper. We have worked out that it's just a recording of Van Leiden's voice, but... Right, cut it open, says Pertwee, as the tension reaches its climax, and out of nowhere and nothing comes one of my most favourite cliffhangers of all time. So unusual, so unexpected, and so, so right. If Carlsberg had a threesome with Messrs Marx and Spencer, and then nine months later produced a cliffhanger, well, you get the picture. But that one was hiding in plain sight. However, when I started learning about Doctor Who, there was one cliffhanger that was missing. It seems so hard to conceive now, but the legend was that the famous climax to episode three of The Deadly Assassin was gone forever. Mary Whitehouse had complained about the episode, which for many years she continued to see in her mind's eye, she recalled, some time later, like a pro-censorship Zelda presiding over the morals of the nation. The instalment ended with Chancellor Goth holding the Doctor's head underwater. You're finished, Doctor. You're finished, he said, 
before the camera cut to Tom Baker's head bobbing underwater, and the shot was frozen, the hero preserved in celluloid aspic, submerged in swamp water. Whitehouse's argument was that the image would remain with the children who watched, all week, an image of peril and jeopardy, and an easily imitable one at that. And so, reasoned the national viewers and listeners Mekon, it was even more harmful than if the moment had happened mid-episode or elsewhere. And the powers that be agreed, lopping the shot of the Doctor and the freeze frame off the master tape, robbing it of its most effective slash terrible, depending on your point of view, moment. So for a while, any repeats of the story on satellite channels or abroad had the truncated version of that episode. Some time later, a copy turned up with the cliffhanger present and correct, and so it could be reconstructed, and that is the version that was released on video, whereupon hundreds of younger siblings were drowned by their impressionable elders up and down the country after they'd been exposed to the horrors of the episode. Or maybe they weren't. Oh. The Deadly Assassin, though, was one of the few occasions where a cliffhanger I knew was coming in a story I was familiar with because I'd read the book and the episode guides and everything, still shocked me and made me want to watch what was coming next with slavering anticipation. And it wasn't episode threes. It was episode ones. I knew what the cliffhanger was. The president is shot. Yeah, yeah. Happens at the beginning of the story too, so is hardly the stuff of legend. Not something I was particularly anticipating with much excitement. And it didn't even really count as a non-regular character in peril, because we know he dies. Some old guy we know dies, dies. Yeah, whatevs. But the way the action is orchestrated by director David Maloney is superb. The doctor grabs a gun. We don't know it's been tampered with. He aims and he fires. Immediately, a blast hits the president, who buckles to his knees. Freeze frame. Absolutely stunning. Well shot. The freeze frame is a killer, heart-in-the-mouth moment, and it's cleverly put together in a way that makes you think that the Doctor has done the shooting. And so, yes, it's a bit perils of Pauline, because next week requires the insertion of a shot of an unknown Time Lord, later revealed to be Chancellor Goth, pointing a laser at the President. And that, we learn, is the reason that the Doctor picks up the rifle and aims, but misses, because as he later discovers, and as I said earlier, it has been tampered with. But still, it's worth it. And a cliffhanger that fits into two subcategories, Perils of Pauline Get Out and Freeze Frame, and you know what, if you like, non-regular character in Peril 3. And what do you mean I haven't done the Freeze Frame subcategory? Oh, OK then, here goes. They are a director David Maloney trick and they are simple and gorgeous and brilliant, and I love them. Genesis of the Daleks 2 has Sarah falling from the scaffolding around the Thal rocket. She is climbing up to escape. As she screams and falls, our hearts leap into our throats, and, as if reacting to our start, the picture itself freezes. Extraordinary. Now, many have criticised the get-out. She hits an hitherto unseen ledge just below her where she falls, but I'm OK with that. The ledge isn't illogical, and we weren't shown it because, well, it wouldn't have been exciting, would it? But it wasn't established 
that there weren't ledges. And it's not like the hand of God reached out and lowered her gently to the ground, or someone had substituted Sarah for a fake Sarah in a scene that we're only shown the following week. Then we have Planet of Evil 2, in which the Doctor falls into the black swamp on the jungle planet, a swamp that we have seen claiming lives. As he pitches into nothingness, the director once again hits the pause button. Yes, please. And this time, don't write in. There's no ledge. No ledge at all. Just a meeting with the antimatter creature, which then spits our hero back out again, like he's Boba Fett looking for a spin-off. But those freeze frames weren't the only way to grab a youngster who was so familiar with the stories it needed something really special to surprise him. Sometimes they would give a clue to how the series was made, their contribution to the narrative less interesting than their story behind the scenes. In the olden days, when Doctor Who was made on a weekly basis, the production team had the choice of playing in the reprise from last week via a film recording or simply re-enacting the action afresh. The film recordings could be played in to save everyone hassle, but it wasn't always straightforward to do so. And as has been covered in my sister podcast, Too Much Information, the beginning of part four of The Daleks plays in the film recording from the previous week, but it has extra action in the middle of the sequence. It's longer than what happened at the end of part three, which doesn't make sense. We still haven't quite worked out if that happened at the time or if it is a glitch brought about because of subsequent damage to the print for part three, but it's an interesting anomaly. And the end of part four, in which Ian realises he has dropped the fluid link, is played in at the beginning of part five, but it is a new take, because the take from part four had end of episode captions superimposed over it, so couldn't be reused the following week. So it's a take performed during the production of part four, not restaged when making part five. So it's a film recording of last week, and yet it's different, slightly, subtly, from what we saw last week. Blimey. See, there's so much. Now, restaging creates issues of its own. Sometimes an actor at the end of episode one would not be needed for the rest of episode two, so there'd be no point bringing him back. And so Leslie Bates, for example, who has one line as man at lop at the end of episode one of Marco Polo, is substituted by an extra at the beginning of part two, where the man has no lines at all. He's just a silent presence being spoken to by Tigana. The reason the sensorite in the window changes design between episodes one and two of that story happens for similar reasons. First sensorite actor Ken Tilson would have been an expensive luxury to pay for a week just to peek in at a porthole, so instead extra Anthony Rogers is the climactic Dr Snuggles. But as each sensorite has a bespoke mask, watching the episodes now, one after the other, emphasises the starkness of the difference between the two monsters at the window. Also, it's fair to say, Rogers has a much more effective entrance, putting his hands against the glass and peering mysteriously. The following week, it has to be said, the bewhiskered Smurf-alike played by Tilson just looks like he's standing on a ledge, staring gormlessly like a loner watching a party he hasn't been invited to, 
and with not a mysterious hand against the glass in sight. And, of course, episode endings, it is fair to say, require perhaps a different style of acting than episode beginnings. Joseph First famously gives the climactic Nothing in the world can stop me now! ending of part three of The Underwater Menace much more welly than the comparatively subdued rendition he gives in the refilmed version that opens part four. I mean, I say comparatively, he's still no Clint Eastwood. In fact, he makes Brian Blessed sound like Clint Eastwood. Some cliffhangers are, surprisingly, not really cliffhangers at all. Sometimes episodes would come in over or under time, and so action had to be juggled in order to balance out those running times. I've covered Planet of the Spiders earlier, but there are others. Genesis of the Daleks Episode 3 was meant to have Davros declaring that the Daleks will be the ultimate conquerors of the universe, but when it was found to be overrunning, that material was held back to Episode 4, and instead the Doctor's electrocution in the rocket bay was hastily turned into an emergency cliffhanger. And when the story came out as a cassette, that visual would not have worked as the release's one episode ending, which is there in order that the listener is able to turn the tape over to play the other side. I'm aware that young listeners will now have no idea what I'm talking about. And so what happens is that we get yet another cliffhanger for that section of the story. And this time it's the moment that the Doctor laments and I sent Sarah and Harry in there as the Khalid Dome is destroyed by the Thal attack. It is, for me, inorganic construction though it is, the best of the three episode-ending options we have for the midpoint of the story, and one of the reasons that the cassette of Genesis of the Daleks will always have a very special place in my heart. And talking of childhood memories, what a shock it was when the BBC repeated An Unearthly Child as part of the Five Faces of Doctor Who season to see it end with a cliffhanger into the next story. I had no idea. So yes, the Hartnell years really were one single adventure in space and time, with no opportunity to breathe, let alone fit in a whole season of Big Finish adventures between stories. It's not all go. The rescue ends with the TARDIS not hanging, but pitching over a cliff edge. But next week, however, that all turns out to have been months ago, and the crew have been having a right old time of it in Rome, and apparently, in the case of Ian and Barbara, developing a drink problem and occasionally bonking. This is a trick later employed by Stephen Moffat, a um, post-cliffhanger time displacement, not developing a drink problem and bonking. Instead of addressing last week's climax immediately in stories like Day of the Moon, Moffat transports us instead forward in time, posing more questions rather than giving immediate answers in order to keep the viewer watching and keep the whole way the show does these things fresh. The Hartnell era, though, meant that the characters at the end of each story would literally escape to danger, ending one adventure but barely having time to change before being terrified by a giant footprint or freezing in time or um, discovering that the scanner's broken. Not every story ended with a cliffhanger during Hartnell's time, and the practice wasn't entirely wiped out at the end of The Gunfighters. But it's a practice that seems unusual when it happens, as it does sometimes, in the Troughton, Pertwee and Davison eras. Unusual, but not unwelcome, even when one of them is 
Nyssa having a bit of a headache. And whilst the occasional new series episode has ended on a season arc twisting moment, hello, turn left, cliffhangers have only really been the business of the two or three parters in New Who. But that doesn't mean there aren't some magical ones. The Doctor's vow to come and rescue Rose from the Dalek ship at the climax to Bad Wolf is most unusual because it's a statement of heroism, albeit one that then prompts the Daleks to advance their plan, but that's really more of a coda to the big moment. It adds a bit of an emotional onslaught to the dramatic conclusion, and it creates one of the show's most punch-in-the-air moments, a different kind of anticipation to that we usually get at an episode's end. But that's Russell T Davis doing what Doctor Who does best, but adding a fresh twist. I mean, he even gives us the semi-comedic refrain of what, 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 to jolly us into Christmas. Forty-odd years on, there are still new ways to do this stuff. And so, I have to admit, I wasn't massively missing the old way of doing things until Flux came along and decided to behave like old-fashioned multi-parters of yore. And I loved that element of it. The tease that prompted us to stay in the moment of jeopardy for the whole week, desperate to see how it paid off. Flux, comfortingly, in its roster of cliffhangers, offers us the whole gamut. Oh, there's a countdown that gets to one, as all good countdowns do, at the end of War of the Sontarans. There's a new thing, yes. There's a bit of action after the cliffhanger in the middle of the closing titles in Village of the Angels. That's new and different and weird and therefore I love it. And then there's one in which the villain moves his hand very slowly towards the Doctor, as if mimicking the Master's slow-mo button pressing at the end of Part 4 of Colony and Space, and so gleefully recalling one of the silliest of all Doctor Who cliffhangers. Just in case you weren't sure if the survivors of the Flux cliffhanger was silly enough, the Doctor's clever way of getting out of it the following week is to uh, step back and to the side and run away. Fiendish. Oh yes, it has it all, from the sublime to the ridiculous. Now, I'll be interested to see if in a few years' time there are many episode endings that have lodged themselves in the minds of the youngsters lured to New Who, or whether it's the pre-titles moments that are now embedded in their synapses like a race memory. Or will it be different moments entirely? The next time trailers, perhaps? Ah, because they are what we really have to get us slavering for next week these days. Not some randomly concocted moment of jeopardy, but a selection of tantalising moments, whetting our appetite for the new adventure to come. Trailers, essentially. But making those is a very skilful procedure. Just enough info not to spoil the story. Perhaps even a bit of misdirection. Something you can savour between episodes without ruining your appetite. But whatever methods the production team have for getting us to come back week in, week out, long may they continue. I certainly don't want to kill them. Well, not just now. Thank you so much for listening to Indefinable Magic. This week's episode, To Be Continued, was written and performed by me, 
Toby Hayden. The podcast artwork is by Dylan Patterson, and the music for Indefinable Magic has been specially composed by Dominic Glynn. These podcasts would be impossible without the support of patrons, who include Jim Sangster, Gav Rymill, David Gillespie, Andrew East, David Matthewman, Siobhan Galichon, John Rivers, Quarridors, Gregory Hudson, Anthony Carroll, Mark Aldridge, Sebastian April, Matthew Houliston, Stephen White, Rob Dawson, Darren Howard, Stephen Moffat, Mark Trevor Owen, Rob Leonard, Guy Lambert, Andy Case, Rich Wiggins, Anthony Carroll, Hendrik Korzeniowski, Kazin, Duncan Harvey, Paul Colnaghi, Kyle Bors, Richard Straw, Gary Wales, Peter Ware, Andrew Jordan, Thomas Payne, Robert Jewell, John Curley, Tom Selinski, and Darren McCarr. Those guys were some of the very first patrons when the Patreon page was launched uh, way back in November. 2020. A lot of water under the bridge since then. But it's not too late to go to patreon.com forward slash Toby Haydock, where you can get advanced material, bonus releases, exclusive material, various other bits and bobs, including, you know, a bit of access, Q&As. And uh, it's all mostly available at the lowest tier, which is £3 a month. You can get a 10% discount on that and any of the tiers if you sign up for a whole year. But as I say, there are a couple of other little trinkets as you ascend the ladder of tierage. But uh, but as I say, most of the stuff uh, is available uh, at the easiest entry point. But I know that that's not even easy for everybody. Times are tough and it looks like they're going to be getting tougher. So if you are unable to commit to the monthly thing, you can occasionally uh, go to ko-fi.com forward slash Toby Haydock and chuck a few uh, silvers into my proffered hat as I busk my way through the internet. But, as I say, I know times are tough and look, I'm just grateful to the fact that you listen to these uh, and that there's an audience out there for my waffle. But I'll tell you what you can do that costs you absolutely nothing. You can go to iTunes or Podbean or wherever it is that you get these podcasts and give them a five-star review. Five stars really helps to separate these from all of the other podcasts out there because there are loads uh, and a couple of lines of review, review too, really tickle the algorithms and uh, and make sort of passing punters aware of what goes on here and perhaps that, you know, there's something worth dipping into. I hope you can do that for me. I'd be grateful if you can. But look, mostly, thank you for listening. I really do appreciate it. I'm also a stand-up comic. Excess Malarkey Comedy Club has been running in Manchester for, well, it'll be 25 years this September, and I've been there since the very beginning. So essentially I've been in the same place for 25 years. That's quite a career trajectory. (laughs) 8pm at the Breadshed in Manchester uh, every Tuesday night. Uh, I am there 
as MC introducing four comedians from the national comedy circuit. And it's really good natured. Uh, it's as cheap as we can possibly make it. It non- runs on a non-profit making ethos. For those of you that can't get to Manchester at 8pm on a Tuesday, well, look, it's online 8pm the first Sunday of every month. That is free. We do encourage donations, but it's not mandatory. And that is me introducing four acts from around the world we can go anywhere because uh, we're not we're not confined by geography there's already an archive up there on twitch.tv forward slash excess malarkey which has got loads of clips from the shows that we did during lockdown uh, where we just kept going uh, but we found that we enjoyed doing the online version it's very different from the live version but it's there and there's bits of it for you to see twitch.tv forward slash excess malarkey but also tune in live there at 8 p.m on the first sunday of every month sometimes our timetable changes it's best to follow at excess malarkey x then s then malarkey uh, on twitter or me at uh, toby haydoke or these podcasts at haydoke podcasts oh i had to cut loads there about um, exactly i started doing a thing of saying exactly which episodes of peter davison and patrick Troughton stories ended with cliffhangers into the next one and which episode of the time monster had a different cliffhanger to that was that was in the script and i realized i was getting a little bit listy um so if you think i missed something out i, d- I originally didn't but we'd have been here forever and these are supposed to be sort of you know whimsical not completist it's more about the observations than the accumulation of facts although part of my brain is going get all the facts in toby get all the facts in but i fight that part of my brain i fight that part of my brain as often as i can because it's a part of my brain that makes me very sad in both senses of the word so um I could start listing going, well, at the end of Fort Doomsday, uh, Nyssa faints uh, and uh, that leads into Kinder. And at the end of Frontios, the TARDIS gets caught in the time corridor. And there's even one in John Pertwee era because the end of Frontier in Space leads into the beginning of Planet of the Daleks. What about the Trouton era where the end of the Underwater Menace leads into the Moon Base and the end of the Moon Base leads into the Macro Terra? But I'm not. Oh, and even the end of the Faceless Ones leads into Evil of the Daleks. It happens all the time. Ah, but I'm not. Oh, and, of course, uh, yeah, uh, Web of Fear into Enemy of the World, uh, Dominators into the Mind of Evil. It happens loads in more than I just, just, just say. And I suppose you could also say End of Fury leads into Beginning of Wheel in Space because Victoria's at the Beginning of Wheel in Space, but that's not a cliffhanger, is it? So it's not a cliffhanger. It's not a get out. It's just a, it's just a, it's just because um, Wendy Pabry is not in episode. Well, it's, I, this is the stuff I vowed not to put in, and I put it in at the end because I'm an I'm going to say arse because I've already said twat in the podcast. I don't normally swear, but those those two mild swear words that I... Well, the twat was necessary. It was planned. It was a planned twat. The arse was involuntary. I've ended on an involuntary arse. <laughs> oh, dear. <laughs>